welcome everybody to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I got a good one today. I'm sitting down with Dr. Mark Goldstein. Dr. Goldstein has had a rich career in veterinary medicine. He has been a senior staff clinician at Angel Memorial Animal Hospital in Boston. Uh, he's been the director of the LA Zoo. He's been director of the San Diego Humane Society and SPCA. Um, he is just a fascinating person who has done a ton of stuff. Um, unfortunately, right now, Dr. Goldstein is battling uh, pancreatic adenocarcinoma, as we talk about a bit in the podcast. And uh, it's uh, led him to reflect a bit on his career. And I saw that he was doing a keynote presentation at the Fetch conference talking about um, about his life and lessons that he learned in practice and, and kind of what he sees as important um, in this phase of his life. And I wasn't at that conference and I wanted to hear what he had to say. I, I just, it seemed very important to me. And it, it just, I don't know, I, 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 wanted, I, wanted to, I wanted to soak up his knowledge. And so I invited him on the podcast. And he uh, and he came along, and he uh, he shared a lot of uh, a lot of great stuff that you're going to get to hear. And so, um, without further ado, I'm going to jump into it. After one quick thing, I do need to mention um, there is a brief but uh, slightly graphic mention of suicide in this episode. If that does uh, bother you, you may want to, to pass. Um, but it is uh, it is there, and I just want to give people a heads up. So anyway, without further ado, let's get into this episode. This is your show, we're glad you're here, we want to help you in your veterinary career, welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mark Goldstein, thanks for being here. Uh, it's just an honor to be here, Andy, you've been so, such an inspiration to this profession, it's really nice to do this with you. Oh, back, back at that, well, for, thank you for saying that, first of all, but but you as well. I, you know, I, I first became aware of you and your work back in 2019. You had a book, uh, Lions and Tigers and Hamsters, that came yep. out. And it sort of came across my desk. And I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, know, I didn't know you at all. Um, and so I looked on your background. And, you know, you were at Cornell. You've had a leadership position at Angel Animal Medical Center. Uh, you were the director of the LA Zoo. You're the <laughs> director of San Diego S, uh, SPCA. You have had a rich and robust uh, career, a fascinating career. And so I, I, was, I was looking at that and I was aware of your book and then you did the keynote address at the Fetch Conference in San Diego, just as we're recording this, it was just a couple of days ago and it was called I Wouldn't Change a Thing. And you talked about your career and you reflected on a life well lived. And I thought that's the conversation I wanna have. I, 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 wanna, I wanna talk to Dr. Goldstein. You, you have done so much and you have seen so much. And I, I think I, I know that I have uh, a ton of things that I could learn from you. And so I, I wanted to, to come on and just, just have you talk a bit about your keynote and, and just mostly just, just talk a bit about your career and kind of as you, as you reflect on it, uh, what, are you, what are your takeaways? What are your words of advice, I guess, for, for the next generation? You know, talking to my, our colleagues and even to uh, animal, uh, animal vet techs um, and all the people that are in animal welfare, I think one of the things that, tools that I talked about on Saturday to go when it gets dark. And we all know we have some very dark days in our profession. You know, an irate client, somebody's complaining about the bill, things that are unrelated to why we got into this in the first place. When those things happen, I one of the things I always went back to was the fact that 
80% plus of the world has a job to put food on the table and take care of their family. It's not necessarily what they need to be doing. We are in the 20%. We got to choose and we got to do what our calling was and what our passion was. That gives it, we're really wealthy for that, that we're able to do what we wanted to do as opposed to do what we had to do. And it also offers us ways of changing. If you get into small animal medicine, it's not what you thought it would be. You can change. You go into a different field. You can go into all the various aspects that veterinary medicine touches. The next message I guess I'd share is that the reason I say I wouldn't change a thing, I really consider our profession a sacred profession. I Googled the other day, you know, what the public thinks of veterinarians. And what came up was, it said, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, that people think that veterinarians are passionate, trusting. Um, they they uh, really feel like they can go to them at a time of need. And it was very, you know, all positive. Yeah. Versus physicians who most people think are arrogant. And it had some negative words. Yeah. And I basically said to the people in the room, and there were about 600 people in the room, um, hey, folks, if the public thinks of that of us, why can't we? Yeah. We are in a profession that affects animals and people. I, maybe in a little bit, we can talk about a, taking a tumor off a goldfish. <laughs> now, I want to watch your eyes because most people do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they go, Mark, I think you've gone over the line here. We can talk about it when you want here in a bit. But we really do affect not just animals, but people's lives. I also made another point, which we can go into more if you'd like, but I put up a slide that said, you know, there's roadblocks that we create. An example, a person, I, when I was in charge of the angel internship program, you know, picking new interns, it was yeah. like chalk on a board when I would ask someone, why did you become a veterinarian and not a physician? And they said, because I like animals more than people. Don't hire that person. Yeah. Really? I, I agree. They, you're in the people profession. We're not just in the animal profession. And I say that because if you're sick and you go to a physician, you may not like them, but you're going to take your advice because you're hurting. When someone comes into our office as veterinarians, if I don't get the respect, they're not going to listen and treat their animal the way I'm asking. Yeah. So I, I need to realize that we're people, you know, and then someone says, well, I don't, I'm not in clinics, I'm in lab medicine or I'm in zoos or whatever. There's always something that you're working with, with that animal. It's a keeper, a farmer. There's always a person involved. So I think we have to be careful about taking people. And if I'm talking to someone that thinks that way, you know, that might be part of the issue that you struggled with. But we are a people profession. Yeah. So those are some of the points I made. There were a couple others. And it was just to inspire them and to get them to laugh. And I guess I was successful because I had, you know, I heard later that, uh, well, we can talk about it at the end, but I got a standing ovation twice at the end. I've never seen that happen in a medical convention. I, I'm very humble about it. I know it almost sounds like I'm pregnant. I'm not. It was just a terrific opportunity. I said to Marty on the stage, this is the happiest I've been in a couple of months now because I'm dealing with this issue we'll talk about maybe at the end. You said, yeah, you said, but, uh, so, so Marty Becker is, is who you were talking to, correct? I was talking to uh, the whole group when I said that. He, he was up on the stage and, you know, he just, uh, I, I just told him that you know, after I was done, yes, after I was done, he gave me a hug and I whispered in his ear, it's happiest I've been in months. I really was honored when Adam called me and said, uh, Adam's the person that puts together the 360 EVM convention conferences. And Marty arranged after I told him the day before about the problem I'm challenged with. And uh, he got, they got online and said, we'd like you to do the keynote. This was a couple of months ago. 
And they even said, we know you could tell us 30 seconds before you have to go on that you can't do it. Because, you know, I'm, my life changes every day a little bit. And um, they said, Marty will step in for you. It was just really an honor to, for them to take that risk. And um, yeah. it was just a great feeling to talk to my colleagues and connect. And I got to speak to about 150 of them because that's how many books I sold right after the talk in two hours. Wow. Which I've never done. So it was a great experience for me. And I hope I stimulated some people because I'll stop here in a second. I said to my wife, if I can touch one person that comes up and says, hey, you reignited my spark, I'm going to feel successful. I had a couple of dozen people when I was signing books come up and say, you know, I was that 65% of veterinarians that would tell a 16-year-old today not to go into medicine, veterinary medicine. There's too many problems. And they said, you just changed my mind. Wow, that's <laughs> just, it's so rewarding. I hope yeah. you've experienced that too, because you're very oh, yeah. inspirational. I mean that. Yeah, it's, oh, well. it's just, it, you feel good about the fact that you can do something positive like that. Oh, so, absolutely. Are you comfortable uh, uh, talking a little bit about, about sort of the challenges that you reference and what's going on? Sure. Uh, very, very well. Um, uh, let me go to the talk I did on Saturday. It was one of the last slides I showed was first. Um, it was, you know, my last point was don't give up. Follow your dreams. You know, don't let somebody take them from you because they have expectations. Um, so what I did was show a slide of the rejection letter I got from Cornell, my junior year, applying. And the last paragraph said, and I blew that paragraph up, uh, you're welcome to apply after you graduate next year, but we don't expect the competition to get any better, you know, any easier. So we strongly suggest that you find a new career. Wow. I, I put that up and everybody in the room laughed, like, because I do have an impact, I think. And then I said, you know, folks, um, you know, I'm not, this is just not theory. You know, um, don't give up. I applied and, you know, I think I did okay. How do you think? What do you think? And they stood up and applauded. It was like, wait a second. Come on. And um, then I went on to explain that, you know, a lot of us listen to people who talk theory, don't live it really. So for me, I want to tell you, when I say don't give up, I'm really going through it right now. I was diagnosed with pancreatic adenocarcinoma. You know, when I was a veterinarian in clinical medicine, I was an oncologist and hematologist. That was my area of interest. So I know enough to be dangerous now, but I know what I'm facing. And, um, you know, I put that up and I said, I'm not giving up. I talked to Adam and he said, if you're around next year, you have the stage again. And I plan to be here next year to talk to you. And they stood up again and applauded. <laughs> and it was just crazy at the end. But I mean that. I'm going to fight this. I've got a lot to live for. It is a, a tough diagnosis. I've gone through three months of chemotherapy. I'm probably looking at a surgery at the end of January. But I'm not trying to be morbid here. Everybody gets a problem in their life. I, I'm a little bit gone through those stages of grieving because it happened. I'm 69. I expected something like this to be 20 more years down the road. Yeah. But uh, it is what it is. And why I say I wouldn't change a thing is because I'm actually facing this, being able to say, it's okay. My wife and I have had so many adventures in our life that could fill three or four lifetimes. It's okay. I have no regrets. How many people can say that at my age? So I feel very lucky, even though I'm facing, you know, the hardest battle of my life for my life. We'll see yeah. where it takes where it takes us. You you say you have no regrets, and I look at your at your career, and it just uh, you've done so many things. What were some of the challenges professionally that you remember facing 
that that seemed insurmountable at the time that that you that you grew past or that you overcame those uh i don't know i just i i have no doubt that you have faced down some some monumental challenges and i I always like to try to learn from people who've been who've been through those things and and excelled you know i I mean the greatest challenges because of the nature of the jobs that i had um for instance as director first of the boston zoos and then i went to los angeles was the politics you know at that when i was at that level you know in massachusetts it was the commissioner of the mdc and then the governor mike dukakis who hired me and there was a friends organization and they made sort of a mistake by not bringing them into the fold picking me to do this mm-hmm. they you know and because of that um i opened up a newspaper once i was shaving actually i was holding a blade i went out to the front got my newspaper put it down i'd just been appointed and on the front page of the paper it was um, a new director for the, our metropolitan zoos. Um, some people are really happy and some don't like it. I was like, what? And I was holding the shaver at the time, a blade. <laughs> and I did have this thought of, oh, come on. That's just ended here. I'd never been in a public. I, you know, at Angel, I did do some uh, live television slots, but nothing like this. Yeah. And uh, what it was that the, you know, um, the, the the volunteer organization would raise half the money for our budget there was not pulled into the decision-making to appoint me. That taught me something, you know, it's bring a lot of people into the tent, try and do it before you make decisions. If you can, they should be there and look for consensus. You know, this was a tough start at first. Ironically, I right away called the board chair and asked if I could just meet with the board, just myself and them. And he said, sure. And they set up a meeting for an evening, I remember. And I went to dinner first by myself just to think. And it hit me. We've all been taught to soap things, you know, subjective, objective mm-hmm. assessment and plan. Approaching a medical case. You know what? For the veterinarians listening here, use the same thing when it comes to business practices. Use the same process comes to personnel issues. You know, subjectively, you know, look what you see. Objectively, look at what the findings are. What's the bottom line, you know, P&L sheet, whatever. Um, but we are talented and we can take that thought process. And when I explained that to them and they said, why do you think you can run the zoo? And I said, and I went into the soap thing and I said, I'm ready to do that. This is my passion. And uh, we reached consensus. They became good friends and uh, it worked. Now, I left because Governor Dukakis left office. A Republican came in and they were, you know, I really believe we had two zoos at the time. They cut the budget. And when it comes to that, I made the decision. We've got to close one of those. You know, I'm, I'm not going to stand by. And zoos are wonderful things to educate people. But if you mm-hmm. can't educate them properly, they shouldn't be there. Right. You know, the, the, the tiger behind a cage now. No, you have to yeah. naturalize the exhibit so that you get to see what they really are like. And education is a big part of that, whether it's in clinical medicine, whether it's in zoo medicine. Um, whether it's in animal welfare, there's usually three legs. One of them is conservation, for instance, and whatever that means in the zoo world, it's easy, you know, uh, conservation of animals, education and entertainment or, you know, interacting with the public. Mm-hmm. And if one of those stools gets pulled out, if one of those legs get pulled out, the stool falls over. We've got mm-hmm. to keep connecting with people. We've got to um, make sure that, um, you know, we're hating them. You know, my biggest complaint in clinics from chief of staff, Gus Thornton, was, Mark, you're terrific. You're the third biggest producer. The other two stayed there till two in the morning. We're great clinicians, but I wasn't going to do that. But you're the third best out of 60 veterinarians. 
but Mark, a 15 minute appointment is not 45 minutes. Yeah. I said, Gus, I'm sorry. I stay late. I never complain about it, but nobody leaves my office without having their questions answered. And that's important to me. I, I really thought it was very important. I don't find that in human medicine today. It's gotten much worse. There's like 10 minute and 20 minute appointments. Uh, how do you balance that? Because so I, you know, you and I sat down to record this podcast and we talked for 35 minutes before I got to hit record and start the podcast because you tell stories and, and you draw in and you, and you explain and you expand. How do you balance that? You know, because you also seem to have a, a, a rich home life and, you know, you say, I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not willing to stay late. I go home. Looking back at your career, how do you balance that that desire, obviously, to build these relationships and to explain, and and then still to be able to to put your work down and go home? Did you ever wrestle with that? I did. Um, you know, you commit yourself to both, and I think it's important. In my case, I'm very fortunate. I really am. I've been married for 41 years to this wonderful person. Um, I have two wonderful children and a great son-in-law, two grandchildren, three grand dogs, <laughs> and. Um, you know, that was important to me. I really understood that, that you got to balance those two. Was it difficult sometimes? Sure. But um, I just worked at it. Some people were critical, you know, the veterinarians that think you should be working 24-7. No, you know, I was always available to my clients. Don't get me wrong. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, the only time once that I had to tell them, find another doctor was a dog that was crashing and a patient, and they called me. I wasn't in clinics at the time, but they called me, and I always knew I wanted to know that. And I had to say to her, because I was in the children's hospital, my daughter was having a medical problem, and my wife actually had a problem right then, too. And um, I had to say, I called them up. I said, Nancy, that was her name. Find another doctor to take this. I had never done that before. I never did it after that. And uh, I was always available, but I made sure that there was time for me to get home whether it was at breakfast or dinner, to spend time with my kids and my wife. Was it challenging? Yes. But if you commit yourself to do it and you approach it, you know, with an open mind, you can make it work. I, I, but I won't say it wasn't difficult sometimes. Hey guys, I just wanna jump in here real fast with a couple updates from the Uncharted Veterinary Conference side of the house. I am running my strategic planning workshop series with my wingman, the one and only practice management goddess, Stephanie Goss. We have four different uh, strategic planning workshops, uh, January 26th, February 9th, February 23rd, and March 9th. Information coming soon on those. I'll put a link so you can watch for when registration opens up. You can uh, come to one of them. They're, they all stand alone. They all do very different things. They are $99 to attend a workshop or $2.99 for all four workshops or if you're an Uncharted member, you can come for free. Uh, they're all included. And also you can get replays through our online school. So guys, don't uh, don't sleep on that. If you're like, hey man, we really need to plan. Uh, I got your back and I'm happy to work with you. Come on and be a part of this workshop because it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be great. And I enjoy I enjoy working with people on where their business and where their careers are going. It just um, it's something I, I get a lot out of. So I would love for you to be there and uh, and to work with me. Also, big one. In April, April 21st through the 23rd, the Uncharted Veteran Conference is back together live and in person. Guys, we're gonna keep this small. It's gonna be probably under 100 people and we're just doing that for COVID precautions. But but at the same time, we need to get back together. It's it's time for people to come together and get recharged and get refocused and work together um, and just rebuild those connections, those face-to-face -face connections. And um, guys, I just we did our Practice Owner Summit in December. And it was so great and it was so powerful and it was so meaningful. And um, 
I know I got so much out of it, and I, I think uh, I think our, our our attendees did as well. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it's time for us to get back together. This conference is all about running smoother, simpler, more efficient practices that are enjoyable. It's not about getting more people in the building. I don't think we need that. It's not about finding new things to do. I don't think we need that. It is very much about clear communication, building systems, training staff to get more done with less. And also just to just to shake off the, the stress. If you feel like you're just running from one fire to another fire to another fire, this conference is for you. You can register now. Uh, it is in Greenville, South Carolina. As I said, it will be in person. It is only for our Uncharted members. So grab yourself an Uncharted membership and head on down to see us in Greenville, South Carolina, the 21st through the 23rd. Links to both of these things in the show notes. Guys, without further ado, let's get back into this episode. How, how did you know when it was time to make a change? So I think about you leaving clinical practice and going to be the director at the zoo. Like that's a massive change. And then, you yes. know, um, and you've, you've, you've moved from, from place to place. And at the very beginning, one of the first things you said when we sat down was, you know, you talked about sort of vet medicine gives you options. And I, I always love the idea that vet medicine is a house with a million rooms. And that is a very attractive thing about the profession to me as well. It's like you can, you can bend and you can mold and you can do, you can do different things. What was your decision process when you said it's it's time for me to to try something new or to go something else? How, how do you make those decisions? It's great. In that case, uh, Governor Tocco was running for president at the time in Massachusetts back in 1987, 88. And um, it took a year for me because I was actually offered a very prestigious position at Angel if I would stay because I, I had an open, you know, I said to them, hey, guys, I've been offered the job director of the Boston zoos and I had worked with captive wildlife before I took that into clinical medicine. And the decision was when I was sitting on a beach up in Massachusetts, we really do have them, but they're not like beaches in the South. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, we were sitting there with, uh, with my wife and I finally just looked at her and I said, you know, I can probably, if this doesn't work, go back into medicine because I was practicing at a fairly high level with people that were incredible. Um, I could probably go back to that not, you know, if if this doesn't work. But if I don't try this, it's like somebody just put a mountain in front of me and said, I dare you, you know. And um, I said, I've got to give it a try, you know, and to put my clinical medicine on the shelf. And I loved being a doctor. I loved being a clinician, I mean. Uh, but the decision was because here I was presented with a great challenge. And I saw the opportunity to now affect populations of animals versus individual animals like we do in clinical medicine. That got my interest. And, you know, when somebody's running for president of the United States and asks you something like that, and they're willing to put the money into it, and I knew I was going to be able to complete a $26 million tropical forest exhibit, it was, how can I turn this down? Let's give it a try. And so I made that change. And that was really what, it was hard because I loved what I did um, in clinics. But, it, you know, it just, and it was, it was a good decision. You know, I have no regrets. You know, I went from that to being a director of zoos. And then I, uh, politics played a part. Like I said, there was a change in administration. They wanted to change things. And when I wanted to close one zoo, the state senator from there went after me with a vengeance. Um, that's another lesson. My wife never understood why these people could be pretty nasty publicly saying things. And yet, when I would go to a meeting and a senator, a state senator, or a state rep was there that I knew was thinking that, and I'd still shake their hand, say hi, 
center. You know, my dad taught me something. He said, if you don't like a teacher, get an A in their class. Don't complain. Don't let their problems misdirect you in a different way. And the same goes to veterinary medicine. We have this whole yeah. list um, of things that, you know, we talk about depression and suicide. You know, years ago, when I gave this talk, kind of, I would talk about them and say, folks, you know, this is, this is what we're facing. Today, I feel differently because of people like you, Steve Dale, Marty. It's, hey, folks, these are the challenges that we have. Now let's take them on ourselves. Don't, nobody else is going to help us with them. Yeah. So, for instance, you know, one of them is that we, we struggle with the fact that people's expectations, they want to do everything for their animal. And then they ask, but it's going to cost that much? You know, our job then is to educate them, to let them know that, hey, wait a second, we have the same training that a physician has. And if you went in with the same problem to your doctor, it would cost you five times the amount I'm charging. But the skills the same, the equipment we use the same, and all the other things that make it very similar. And you know what? If it's a person who's willing to listen, you change their mind. But we have to be proactive. I would love, maybe you can give this talk. I'd love to see a poster made which says, this is a physician's training. This is a veterinarian's training. Wow, it's the same. <laughs> you know, and, and we, but we have to be proactive. We have to look at that list and start to chip away with it. You know, the cost, the, the debt we incur, the euthanasia serum being right on the shelf so it's very readily available. You know, all these things that we say contribute to this depression and suicide and everything. Well, let's stop just saying them and accepting that they have changed them because nobody else, like I said, is going to do it for us. Yeah. And um, I've tried to do that. Well, and we have, we have to believe it ourselves. I I think that that's a big part of it as well. You know, when the clients Mm -hmm. come in and say, well, why do you know, why, why do you charge this for your time or what? You know, I I think a lot of us, we need pet owners to believe our value so that we can believe our value. And I I think that, I think that's misguided. I, I think, I think we have to believe ourselves what, what, we know what training we did and we know what our time is worth and we know how many things we're juggling and we know, you know, what we put up with and, and, and how are we work. And, you know, I think we should, we should work to explain ourselves and, and educate people. And at the same time, I think it's more important that we ourselves believe it um, and, uh, and, I, and live that. You really just hit a point that I made. I looked up Google about a week before the talk and I put in, what does the public think of veterinarians? I kid you not. I got this statement that said, the public believes in veterinarians. They trust them. They think they're compassionate. They think they're caring. And it was all these positive words that the public feels about veterinarians versus physicians who they think are arrogant, you know, stubborn. And it was negatives. And what I said to them is, folks, if the public thinks of us like that, why can't we think of ourselves like that? We are. We are compassionate. We are caring. We got into this profession most likely because we weren't going to make six figure plus salaries, though I would suggest we deserve it. But, you know, there's got to be a balance there. Um, We got into it for the right reasons. And we've got to remember that. And if the public thinks that way, we certainly should. What what are what are the things in your career that you didn't think that you would enjoy that you ended up finding uh, reward and enjoyment in? Interesting question. That's a that's a new one for me, Andy. Thanks. <laughs> Tough question. Well, just I, I think about you know you're you're going in into these positions and and you're uh, at the SBCA and you know the politics are coming and things like that. Are there things like that that you said, oh, what am I doing here? And the, and then you got into it and found that you were you were um, adept at it or or uh, or that you enjoyed it. Well, let me talk about clinically first. Um, when I started practice, I sort of dreaded ever telling a seven or eight year old it was time to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. And I found out very quickly that age 
bounces back very quickly. You tell them and they cry maybe or whatever. And then 15 minutes later, it's mom, can we go eat ice cream? I was a bit surprised, but I learned that the second hardest population to tell that to, and I'll get to the first in a second, is a, I had a, I still remember the first time it happened. An 18 year old young lady came in with a 16 year old cocker spaniel. It was time to say goodbye. And I realized that she had probably told this animal things, this dog, yeah. um, things that she never told anyone else in the privacy of her room. You know, she never had a significant death in her life. She went into counseling for six months. So I, you know, for people listening here, if you've got, you know, a 15 to 25 year old, someone who is just learning really the finality of death yeah. and all the things that go with it, be careful. They, they will hold. It's natural for those people to hold it inside and not let you know. But um, if they've had a dog most of their life or a cat or a pet, don't dismiss it. Now, the hardest population I found, which was a surprise, I didn't think of this, senior citizens. Yeah. That person who gets unconditional love, and it may be the only source of unconditional love. Right. I had three people come to my office threatening suicide. One of them did after we put her animal down. Oh, no. She started the conversation with, she had a 19-year-old dog, and she said, my husband loved him, like, I'm not sure, maybe more than me before he passed away last year. And I realized she had transferred her love for her into this dog. And um, a month or two later, she said goodbye, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, so, uh, you know, telling a senior citizen and again, for people who are listening, if grandma or grandpa, you know, or your uncle, your aunt, and they're, you know, 75 more, be aware that if they have to put down their animal, it's going to tear their heart out possibly. Yeah. And you've got to be there to support them. Please avoid those terms, even though I tell people when they're going to go through it, hey, don't be upset when someone says to you, let's go down to the shelter or the campus and get a new animal. Who would ever say that to someone who just lost a spouse? Well, maybe my wife, <laughs> they, she might, they might tell her, hey, go get a new husband. You're doing better now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, sorry, maybe it's like that. Uh, but you wouldn't tell that someone if they lost a child. So why would you say that if they lost a dog? You know, they've got to go through that grieving and mourning process. But I try and tell people they mean well. They're trying to get mm -hmm. you off center and get you smiling. You know, or then it's a little bit, it's, oh, come on, it's just an animal, come back to work. Or maybe their work doesn't even give them grieving time off. Yeah. You know, when you lose an animal, it's been in your life for 10 years plus, you deserve to take a day or two off work to grieve it, just like a person. So um, those challenges, uh, you know, again, like my talk, instead of just accepting that it exists, you look for solutions. One of them for me is to maybe hopefully educate others to be aware, be cognizant. Don't tell grandma or grandpa, you know, hey, come on, go, you need to go into assisted living and we'll just give the dog to the shelter. They'll find a new home. We have to work and advocate maybe for more assisted living facilities that allow people and animals to have been together. Because they, there are a lot of people that avoid going into assisted living because they're not going to give up their pets and they should go into yeah. assisted living. They need that care. Those are the challenges I've seen. Another one that I faced and I work hard at, I showed slides, that's the terms and words that we use in veterinary medicine. And for instance, um, I, um, uh, I'm sorry, Andy, I, I get this chemo brain from being yeah, in no, therapy no, and I, I, I lose my track here, um, but um, was the words that we use. And I put up a slide, for instance, this would be the external force that come to play. Years ago, there was a headline in the LA Times, the governor has cut the budget allowing shelter workers to kill animals sooner. Mm. Come on, folks. What it should have said is the governor's cut the budget 
forcing or you know uh, making it for shelter workers to have to euthanize the animals sooner yeah those two words kill and you know uh, allowing them to to do it yeah they don't belong there oh yeah um Let's let what we ourselves accept those things. In other words, another example is lobe spin and neuter. I may surprise you with this. We should get rid of that term. I always ask, and I did this time. I said, anybody in this room take low cost parachute lessons? Yeah. This time for the first 10 years, two people raised their hand. And I said, I think you need counseling. Um, <laughs> but, you know, most people go, oh, no, no way. Because low cost implies you've cut corners. Okay, but as veterinarians, we even allow that term to be used. It should be subsidized or affordable because someone's paying that bill. And by doing that, veterinarians don't even realize they're hurting themselves because if the shelter has low cost spay and neuter, the public thinks, what's my veterinarian doing? He's, he's you know, trying to just get me to spend more money. A spay and neuter for him is $200 and the shelter's doing it for 25 And how come? Because somebody else is paying the other $275 or whatever. Yeah. So we should be vigilant about terms. Kill. We don't kill animals in animal welfare. We euthanize them. The difference is kill implies the intention to do harm. Yeah. And that's not our reason. So these no kill, kill shelter terms. I People watch me in, in meetings when I went to them nationally. And if somebody used low cost or killing it, my hand went right up. Wait a second. Yeah. We've got to think of the impact of those words. So those have been some of the challenges that I didn't expect. You're, uh, you're 69 years old now. And mm-hmm. um, are there things that if you could go back and talk to yourself at age 35, yeah. you, would try to, you would try to get young Mark to understand? Pretty interesting. But you, it's like you weren't at my talk, but you're hitting every piece of it. Well, I, I think that there are things that are fundamentally important that, that for a lot of us. And, and so, uh, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't get to hear your keynote. I, I didn't know anything about it coming in. But these are the questions that I these are the questions I wrestle with is what, what, do I, what am I going to wish that I knew? Well, what I um, I was asked uh, and I put this up also as a slide. It's exactly what you were asking here <laughs> by someone who was turning 50. And he, he you know, I wasn't sure it was a compliment or not, but he said he called me and he said, you know, I um. I'm, I'm searching out people that I respect that have been very successful in their fields who are older than I am. And what would you tell yourself at 50, you know, that you've learned since? So I actually put the slide up because I thought about it. I, I gave it some time and then I wrote to him and I had four points because I can never, I, as you can tell today, I, I'm not very good at being brief. So I had four <laughs> points and it was, um, I'll try and remember them here. Uh, it was, first of all, celebrate the fact that you have good health. At the time that I put that, I didn't realize how impactful or important that was. Keep your friends and family close, okay? Follow your dreams, okay? And don't give up. And these were the things I put on there. I asked my wife the same question. She was much more brief. She said, celebrate your accomplishments and realize that you still have a lot to learn. Never stop learning, okay? That's what I would have told myself. And I actually followed that path. But others, you know, think about that. You, you never know it all. You need to be challenged because if you become complacent and you don't continue to challenge yourself, you're going to go backwards, as we said. So, um, you know, that really guided me. And that's the words I gave him. And that's what I would say to the 30 year old is, you know, yeah. celebrate your health, protect it. Friends and family are important. I will say I'm a little bit different. You know, we've all heard that thing when you're on your last days, whatever, you're not going to even think about your work. For me, I think about my family first with what I'm going through, by far. 
but I also, you know, I both celebrate my work and, um, you know, I feel like I had still more to contribute and I may or may not get that opportunity. So, um, you know, I've had to deal with that, but I'm going to fight it. I'm not going to give up. And, um, that's what I would really say to a 30 year old, just follow your dreams. Don't give up and, you know, look at it and look at it with an optimistic attitude. That's why I love when you talk, Andy, you're always optimistic. And that's a really important thing. I put up the fish philosophy. If people are familiar with the Seattle fish market, I suspect you are. I don't know this. I don't know this. I mean, I'm familiar with the fish market. I know they throw the fish in Seattle. Right. Throw the fish. That's what I'm talking about. These guys got together a couple of decades ago and said, we're going to have fun and we're going to make money. And they have a hell of a time, you know, for people, excuse me, I hope that's okay. Uh, But, (laughs) you know, basically, like you said, you walk up to this guy and you say, I want a two pound salmon and a two pound salmon comes flying across the room. They have four points that they make to do that. The fish philosophy. First of all, when you're in a situation, be there. When I say be there, I'm not just talking physically emotionally, mentally, you know, turn that phone, that phone onto focus, which iPhones have leads, you know, we get the important calls, but not all the other stuff, but be there if you're working by yourself or even with a group of people. The second is play. Um, If people don't know the story of Endeavor, um, it was a captain Shackleton in 1916 took 26 of the Antarctic. They got stuck there for their boat got caught in the ice, got smashed. 26 men survived two years in the Antarctic in 1916. They didn't have REI equipment. They didn't have GPS equipment. They didn't have computers. It was his leadership that played that part. And part of his leadership was as hard as they were trying to survive. Every day they had an hour to play. He took an ice ball and made it into a soccer ball and they played with it. Or they he came up with ways to have games. When somebody was really you know, hey, leave me alone. I'm going off in the snow. Just I'm going to, I'm going. That's the person he slept to, next to that night and talked to. Um, so, you know, I, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry. Oh, yeah. This no, no, stuff no. Just um, affects it. Um, but anyway, I, um, what was the question again? Um, um, so, yeah, I was, I, yeah, yeah, no, I got you also because I rattle on. But yeah, the four points. So it's play. And then next is, um, you know, basically make their day, you know, by that, I mean, you know, say something good, find people that are doing something good. Um, Doug Myers, who was the zoo director in San Diego for gosh, 45 years. He said, Mark, I must be when I'm having a tough time, I go out there and I find somebody doing something good and I thank them and I recognize it and I walk away feeling better myself. Mm-hmm. I've told people, especially after this pandemic, try it. Next time you go through the checkout line on your supermarket, look at the person's name, use it, thank them for what they do. Talk to them as a person, not just someone sitting there checking out your food. You will be shocked. You will get a smile from ear to ear. Servers in restaurants, when they come over, you know what, this is what we've got. Hey, what's your name? Steve, Steve, thanks for being here. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> you know, and then the last basically is, um, you know, just be thankful for what you've got and you get to choose what your day's like. One of the gentlemen from the fish market looks in the camera and he says, folks, you get up and look in the mirror. You get to decide if it's a good day or bad day, no matter what you face, including what I'm facing. You can put a smile on your face or you can let it pull you down. You get to choose that. Nobody else does. So be there, play, find someone doing something good and you know, look in that mirror and decide I'm going to have a good day no matter what they got me. I'm going to smile, I'm going to laugh and I'm going to make it work. It works. Yeah. 
We, uh, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves matter is a, is an idea that I've been holding on to a lot recently. You know, we, the stories that we tell ourselves become the truth for us. And I really like mm-hmm. that. You, you, you decide if you have a good day or not. Thank you so much for being here. Are there, uh, I know when we first talked, you had mentioned, uh, you wanted to touch on some of the points you made at the very end of your keynote. And so are there any, any sort of final points you want to make sure to pass on? No, actually we touched on it and that was my diagnosis and putting up that slide from home. Um, you know, it said, find a new career. Um, I put that up on the screen, like I said, and people just laughed when they saw that. And I said, I think I've done okay. And that's when he stood up and clapped. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you know, it was just, a, it was the example of that. And um, I guess I'd leave it with the fact that, you know, if you put the effort in, like I just said, to, to bring these points to an individual or a group or your local Kiwanis or a large group of colleagues, wow, it was gratifying. As I mentioned earlier, and it's a good one to stop end on, you know, I told my wife, if somebody comes up and, you know, says, you, you made a difference for me. When I signed those books after my talk, I must have had a couple of dozen people say, I'm going to be here next year. I want you to be on that stage. Yeah. Or, you know, I, one woman came up and she said, my daughter just got a rejection letter from vet school and she's a junior also. And uh, she's just devastated. She doesn't want to apply again. Would you talk to her? And I spent a couple of minutes with her and her mom came back with her and she said, you changed her mind. She's like a different person. <laughs> Man, that's so gratifying. You know, it just doesn't really happen often. Um, and these people just said, you just reminded me of why I got into this. So I hope people are listening, even yeah. if you're just listening and you're in different professions and you're in a volunteer in animal welfare, first of all, thank you. You know, we both know we can't do our work without some volunteers and many professions. Yeah. Um, remember why you got into it. Don't let somebody let you go down a rabbit hole. Control your life. Be optimistic and laugh. Laughter is yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah, I agree. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much for being here. I, uh, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I appreciate you, Andy. I, I meant what I said at the beginning. I say it again. If people haven't seen you in person, boy, you light up a room. And I <laughs> hope I did the same thing. I hope you know with this talk. But um, really, you were you're an inspiration to this profession. So thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, All right sir. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you, folks, for listening. Guys, that is the episode. That's what I got for you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I um. I, I enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed hearing these stories and thoughts and perspectives. And I just, um, yeah, I, I, I really soaked this up. So uh, anyway, I hope you found things that made you uh, think and, and reflect on sort of your own career and where you are and, and what medicine means and, and the opportunities that it offers us and the responsibilities that it puts on us. And so anyway, uh, if you did any of those things, then this was a win for me. And so that's that's my only hope going in. So guys, uh, that's it. Thank you so much for be, uh, for being here and, and for listening. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment and write me an honest review wherever you get your podcast. It means a lot. It's how people find the find the show. And it's just a nice word of encouragement for, for me and for my team who are putting these episodes out. So anyway, guys, that's it. Take care. Be well. Talk to you later. Bye.